Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award-winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey everybody, it is Jeff Davis with another episode of the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders align sales and marketing, transform their revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. I am truly excited to have today's guest on, Adrian Chang. He is a marketing leader with a ton of experience in customer marketing and performance marketing and journeys that really move today's buyer and actually get them purchased. So I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about, but I don't want to share his entire story. But with that said, Adrian, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are? Again, super excited to be here. I know we've talked about doing this for a while, but I'm glad today's the day. I lead growth and customer experience marketing here at MindTickle. Next month, I'll celebrate a full year in seat. Next year marks 20 years, thank you, 20 years in tech for me, and I've spent the majority of that time in client-facing roles. I've done operations, I've been in sales, I've been in account management, professional services, and spent most of my career in client services and marketing. And so prior to joining MindTickle, I've had the opportunity to be at IBM and Oracle, where I made big pivot from client service services and then into marketing. And then from there, really my time at Informatica was about, you know, figuring out how to deliver a perfectly timed message across demand, across omnichannel, and then also had a bit of an opportunity to do web transformation before coming home to customer marketing, which I, I feel is my home. For the first part of the year at MindTickle, I actually got to lead another function in marketing, which I'd never led before, which is field. That was a fantastic experience in terms of figuring out how do we move from virtual back to live operations. And so I had a, a really rich opportunity to lead that function. And now, in terms of looking at the holistic end-to-end customer journey, I had customer marketing when I first joined MindTickle, and now the portfolio has been expanded. My passion about tech and delivering a perfectly timed message that supports the buyer, that continues to be part of my narrative. So I'm excited to have that opportunity to add another chapter at MindTickle. Yeah, I love your experience. You've got a, a lot of experience and skill set that you've built over the years in different parts of the kind of the marketing ecosystem or toolkit, right? Customer marketing is interesting. I don't know that all industries call it customer marketing or have customer marketing, but I, I think it's an interesting way to go about the business. So why don't you tell us, because one of the things that we want to accomplish with this platform is talking to all industries and also share best practices across industries, which I don't see enough uh, happening enough. So why don't you give us a little bit of idea of what customer marketing is to you and how you've leveraged it to drive growth in the organization? In my history, I've always looked at customer marketing in a separate role as two different there's two different parts. The discipline of marketing against the funnel in B2B is well known. So the customer marketing piece does have some science to it. And ultimately, if you have advocacy, your advocacy function in, in most B2B organizations that I've worked at earns you the love, that trust with the customer, focusing on their experience and creating our brand champion at scale. The marketing part, the customer marketing part, tends to lend to money. And the reason why you have both a advocacy function and the customer marketing function is with marketing, there's discipline in taking that buyer from a particular point to another end point. And if you only focused on the financials and growing that and getting to lifetime value through acquisition and expansion, you lose sight of the fact that there's a lot of emotion that happens with that customer. In some cases, remorse, if they were not your brand advocate in the buying process, but they actually do achieve a personal career objective that's worthy of being managed. And then you also have concepts of the fact that depending on how your buying process is, it may be single buyer, it may be consensus, it may be committee, 
you often have to influence multiple people. So that's where the complexity is. I've spoken to many folks who are in business to consumer industry. So I spend a lot of time, even with a lot of customers or a lot of my peers who actually do sports marketing. And I did a little bit of sports marketing at IBM. And so they think about loyalty in the concept of the dollar, but you need a team that's focused on the customer's experience that's also centered despite any kind of advocacy. So regardless of what they do, at some point you make an investment and someone has to help deliver on the promise that was set up in the sales cycle. And you ultimately have your account teams who are focused on supporting their customers, driving growth, driving renewals. And if you didn't have a customer marketing function, the burden of driving that experience and representing your brand promise would fall on your account team. The role of the, the customer marketing organization and the profession is to really help that customer navigate and ensure that the company's able to deliver on that brand promise. Customer success group or your account team will still be your channel, your champion and quarterback. You and represent your interests, but your customer marketing team is really there to create programs and experiences that are solely focused on the customer, regardless of their future buying intent. And I think that part is super, super important. One of the things, you know, that on this platform we're really, really focused on is how do we start to assess the health of the sales marketing relationship? And I, I pretty much ask all my guests this because I think that, you know, I started this work, who knows, seems like a decade ago, literally because I was frustrated and didn't find the answers that I was looking for. And, you know, fast forward, it's still an issue for most organizations. Some have made significant progress, but the majority are somewhere in the middle. And to be honest with you, no one's really figured it out completely, right? From your angle coming in, whether it be as a, a new CEO or, you know, a CMO, marketing leader, how do you start to assess, what are you looking at, you know, whether it be metrics or culture, just to see how the relationship between sales and marketing is working? Because I am convinced, this is just N of one, Jeff Davis, if the sales and marketing relationship is not healthy and it's not working, everything else like just doesn't work. I completely agree. I'm going to put myself in the CEO seat and I would say, you know, I'd probably do a deep investigation and just figure out, you know, how well are the intents of either organization well understood by the other. So I would definitely look at the sales team and say, when you think about what we're asking you to contribute to the business, do you understand that there's efforts in other parts of the company to help you achieve, be successful? And then I would just get a sense of, well, I know everyone's intent is aligned around growth and success of the company. How well do both organizations function? And then also look at the metrics in the charter and say, have we done everything that we can to ensure that you're successful? I think the next thing that I would then look at is how are we able to have productive conversations about stuff that's not working? In my career, I spent quite a bit of time, enterprise software, either aspirational enterprise or enterprise software companies. There's a layer of demand type that comes into the conversation to say, if the sales team is working on an emerging offer, they have a huge opportunity to educate product and marketing about what other things we should be doing to be able to go to scale. For an established market or established product, there's an element of competition, competencies of the sellers, quality of the content, and then figuring out, are you at least in the conversation where customers are looking to go and buy your product? I would definitely think that there are other factors that affect the sales and marketing relationship by demand type. There's a different enemy in the mix. It might be a competitor. It may also be, are you looking to drive growth ahead of your team's readiness to go and have it? If I were to just come back to the sales and marketing piece and we're in that CEO seat, what I would look at. I would say, what's the dialogue 
and do they have the same North Star? If they're focused on growth and they are focused on the path to get there, then you work backwards and say, how do you incent both groups to work together and then be able to celebrate the wins and opportunities? If your sales team is focused on both land and expansion and retention, then there should be a conversation about pipeline and customer experience and the customer's satisfaction, how engaged they are. And the team should be incented to work together to say, yes, I understand the levers you need to pull in order to influence the number. We as a marketing team can prioritize and make sure you feel like you have the air cover, the programs, the content, the things that you need to represent the customer. Given where we are now, like as a marketing organization, we have to accept that the salesperson is often the first representation of your brand with us now slowly going back to live operations. As a marketer, I feel very, very invested in ensuring that the seller's success represents my success. If we're not religiously focused on driving the same shared objectives as a CEO, that would be my first sign of, you know what, we've got to bridge that divide and ensure that the teams can have productive conversations and supportive growth in the business objectives that we have to, to go after. It's helpful. You mentioned something around incentives, which I think let's double click on that a little bit because I think it's important. And I don't know that we talk about it enough. I know Aberdeen Group did research years ago that talked about you know changing the incentive structure for marketers, but that really, to your point, is a CEO decision. Do you think there's an opportunity to change the incentive structure for marketing teams? Have you seen it done well? Have you seen it done poorly? Um, you know, historically, and not pointing to any organization, so I'm, I'm giving you as much as much levity here as, as, as I can. Marketing has been a cost center. I'll say it. I have been in marketing where literally they're like, ROI, we don't need to talk about ROI. We just need you to spend this budget and shut up. That is a thing, <laughs> right? Never happened. I'll say it on this podcast. I'll say it. I think we've made progress in certain industries. I say all that to say, I do think there's opportunity for us to change the way in which marketing teams are incentivized and want to get your thoughts on as a CEO, even as a marketing leader, how do you look at that in order to ensure that their incentives are aligned with sales? It's a great question. In the first half of the year, I had the really great opportunity to figure out how do I make seemingly separate functions with field and customer marketing work harmoniously together to drive not only customer love, but then also figure out, can we create an experience that builds future customer trust and accelerate deals? And we were able to do it. In thinking about how do we go and change the incentive, the days of looking at marketing to drive volume, we can't be in a volume game, not if you're in B2B. The question then becomes, how do you then show impact in terms of the outcomes and coverage in terms of the outcomes that we care about? So we care about net revenue, net recurring revenue growth, and we care about new logo. We care about new logo and we care about expansion and we care about a, a number of different things. It is more important that I show that I can make the connection and show my impact in driving those outcomes because it's not solely the marketing team's contribution that's driving it. It's the marketing team's contribution plus the knowledge of the go-to-market and getting the right people in the room. It can't just be like the long live MQL. I'm not on that bus. Stay dead. Right? Because the amount of waste that goes into generating an artificial group of people that have won one minute interaction, I am so glad to be out of that business. We actually have incentives on qualified opportunity generation, which is controversial because at some point the, the threshold of an account in market gets to a point where I actually cannot influence the North Star. 
but it at least allows me to demonstrate how I am contributing to that conversation because it's a leading indicator for engagement and demand creation. So in that scenario, I'm aligned to the growth marker. I am in the forecast conversation. And at least there is a shared incentive to then pull the mind share around marketing and say, or do we need to help create an experience that brings them over the fence? Do we need to bring customers to that conversation to bring it over, over the finish line? Or do we need to do something through digital, through programmatic means to influence another stakeholder in the committee in order to help bring that customer over to the finish line. So hopefully that gives you a sense as to how I've, uh, I've given you some insight as to what we've signed up for. I would say it's been an interesting discussion topic when I talk to my peers outside who are still either on a, who have gone full ABM and are doing account engagement and in other places who are still on an inbound volume model and say, at handoff, this is my contribution, go work the rest. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. I think this is a conversation that's actually happening a lot. I'm the VP of sales. I am on the hook for revenue. You may or may not be in your, in your role as the marketing leader. You come to me and say, hey, Jeff, I know we're going to try to start this whole new relationship with like being aligned and all that sort of stuff. And I'm going to focus on quality leads versus volume. So that means the volume of leads you're going to get, I'm making up a number, is going to be reduced by 50%. I'm not going to take that very well as a sales leader because I'm counting on a certain number of the volume that I'm giving my, my reps to convert. It's just math. What does that conversation sound like coming from you as a marketing leader to assure that this transition to this new ways of working is not going to have me looking crazy and not making my number? I am no stranger to some pessimism from the seller about the leads I give them. I may say, look at how engaged they are. Look at all of the things that they've interacted with. The most sophisticated technology to listen to signals and listen to different, like beyond everybody's comprehension and visualization. Despite all the tech, the skepticism is still there. I choose to take the line of whether you sourced it or I sourced it, I'm going to set myself up to make sure the customer has a good experience. So our, as we look at our customer journey that we've architected, we found ways to follow the buyers who are in market and to help them regardless of sourcing. So at least the battle that I've at least won is please do not force me to go and spend money to engage somebody who is in your address book. So we've made it simpler for me to say, trust me, here's what we've architected across the journey and we'll be able to engage them in a conversation. You know, the net net for me is I've never won the fight of your lead in your conversation is better than mine. From a journey perspective, based on how they engage with us, they're in good hands and I will make sure that I follow them as they navigate our brand and our story and figure out how can we be helpful for them and make sure that they have a good brand experience. And that's worked for me. So speaking about journey, which has become more important than ever before, I assume in your organization, you guys are co-creating this with sales. They're involved in the whole process. Let's talk about other organizations where that's not the truth. Let's go back in time when the customer journey was created by marketing and no one saw it except marketing. And sometimes marketing didn't see it and it was put on a shelf somewhere and we just pushed out content. We no longer can operate in that way. I say that to say, what do you, what would you say to a marketing leader that is trying to evolve their approach to the customer journey and getting sales involved in that process? I feel historically they just haven't been a part of that, the creation of that journey together. And so I'm trying to get some sense on, from you how you would incentivize or encourage a sales leader to actually be a part of that process. It's a great question. So if I'm in that marketer in that, in that world, I've probably gotten so fed up that 70% of the content pieces I've developed either go to waste and don't get looked at. 
right? So I have that emotion and I'm at a standstill. So rather than continue to produce stuff that no one's looking at, I probably want to get my sales leader in a room and get some of the sellers that have closed deals, either a business analyst, somebody who can at least get into some data and some details and just say, look, of the places where we've been able to create this customer, how did they buy? And then say, what mattered, right? What are the interactions? And not just the ones that were on our property. What were the other things that we did? And, and if you don't, if you can't measure it, just have the brown bag session. What you'll end up finding is you're developing pieces that live in places where your buyer does not live and the conversation is not happening there. I feel like you have to unpack a few sales cycles to understand, oh great, I have the best content on the website, I have the best stuff on Instagram, I'm making TikToks with my marketing team. If your rep closed the deal after 30 days because the lead came through G2, or it came through Trust Radius, you then need to start pivoting and saying, well, wait a second. It doesn't make sense for me to create a whole bunch of content to arm my sellers and have it on the website if that's not where the conversation's happening. What is the impact of not being in places where your customers are? And at some point, I subscribe to the analysis of all of the digital buying and the fact I subscribe to all of that and that it probably take 15 plus touches for somebody to actually do their research before a salesperson is involved. So if we know that that's the case and individuals are actually doing a lot of their own peer research and a lot of their discussions, I'd at least say, let's make sure we take care of the brand champions and this is where the customer marketing part comes in. So that you have a group of folks, whether they do it on social or that they take calls and they make themselves available, you either brand them on LinkedIn, you make them available, like an external facing advocate for you. At least arm those people with the message because no one wants to talk to the brands. And I'll even say that no one wants to talk to the brands to do that part of the process. So you've got to figure out how do you allow your customers to advertise for you? And then once you start doing some of that, you've got to then figure out what are the other interactions that likely happen outside of your branded channels where you can live and try to influence some of that discussion. It could be that they're looking at a content syndication network and they're doing their buying there, right? They're choosing to educate themselves if that is your business you should live there and make some tough decisions based on a past formula that you may have had. And I think that's where some of the rub comes in. I've had so much variety in my career and moving around that the same formula actually won't work. I've got to know the customer. I've got to know the segment. I've got to do some research and analysis on how they buy and what pieces, information, are important to them. And then I've got to understand who else do I need to influence and make sure that they have, you know, delivered the best of our brand in every interaction that happens. So it's complicated. This is not easy by far. But I think you can't just, you can't, if I'm that marketer who knows that they're ready to have that conversation with the seller, I've got to look myself hard in the mirror and say, I'm obviously producing things that are not seeing the light of day and I've got to figure out, right? And I can't, and I can't do the flip side, which is produce 100% of what the sellers want because the sellers are not in control of the customer and how they want to buy. The customer is in control and my budget is fixed. The cherry picking and that fight that we we're talking about earlier with the seller, if I can tell the seller that through tech and our focus on omni-channel, I can provide some air cover and digitally surround the buying committee to make sure that everybody's going to have a positive call with sales, that conversation goes a long way. 
that takes some of the emotion out of the, oh, what you brought versus what I brought. And the CEO will like to hear that there's that level of harmony. That's my response for how I think that conversation should go. And the marketer should come to that conversation with some insight. And I mean, they can sit workshop it together and say, hey, look, let's get into it. But if you have the ability to unpack a couple of those buying cycles and understanding what was the path that got you that first conversation or that first meeting and where and when did smoke happen? How would you put yourself in a position to help that buyer shop and then help them pick you? Yeah. And I think for a lot of marketers, it is hard to talk about everything not being on brand.com. Depending on the industry and depending on the product, that brand.com is not where buyers start. You know, I talk about this all the time. I talk about it in the book is that we, in this weird way, feel like when you're buying in a B2B context, that we're not humans. We sit at home and we have Amazon and Zappos and, and you know, all those amazing customer experiences. And then somehow we get to work and it's like, we're robots and we don't need any of that. And we're going straight to brand. It does not work like that. Some marketing teams that, you know, rightfully so have spent a lot of time cultivating the brand and making brand.com beautiful and doing all this stuff. You just got to step back and look, are people going to brand.com period? Let's start there. And then secondly, they're probably not starting there. So you've got to look at all the other channels, the third-party channels, like you said, the G2s and that sort of thing. And they may be driving the conversation, at least in the beginning, which, you know, for the most part, getting gets to own that conversation. And, and again, people aren't going straight to brand.com in most contexts. So it's a hard conversation, but it's this one that you just have to realize. doesn't mean that your brand.com should look terrible. It just means you have to kind of reprioritize where you're, where you're spending your budget to make sure you're in the right places, to your point you said earlier. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I would say, you know, the number of products that you have, I've been a fan of Intent for a number of years now. And what I think is it's a nice compliment to how your customers are interacting with you on a regular basis. Our preferences as humans are allowed to evolve and change. The same thing happens in work, but for some reason... With the advent of, and again, I grew up with marketing automation, we can't assume that the preferences that are true at one point in time stay true forever. You've got to figure out how can you put yourself in a position to stay close to the customer and how their needs evolve, not only as an individual, but at that account level. So even thinking about the profile of risk Intent can also help you understand if the nature of your relationship with your current customer is changing. There's a lot of pressure on marketers to not only get comfortable with delivering on the experience, but then also listening, assessing value to data points that you care about, and then figuring out how to go deliver the right message to drive your key outcomes. And, and retention for us, absolutely a key outcome, you know, in terms of making sure that we're able to, to delight the customer and secure their trust for a very long time. So I want to switch to how organizations should be going about the transition from multi-channel to omni-channel. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume this is probably going to be a lengthy conversation, but to get us there first, you made me think about something in that, what is your POV on having to be in channels that are not easily measured. And why I ask that question is as you start to try to look at all of these channels, these places where your buyers are going to self-educate, et cetera, social maybe, it is tough sometimes to be able to show direct ROI and how those are contributing to the sale. So how do you talk to the CEO, the CRO, whoever that is of like why we're investing in these channels or investing in these places that we can't necessarily quote unquote, I'll show ROI or whatnot, because I think that is a contentious conversation, maybe holding back some marketing organizations on doing the things that they want to do that they know drive the business. You know, you've got to understand where your customers live and how they buy and then figure out what's the path they're likely going to take in terms of doing their research and, and how do you make some of those decisions? You have to start with a hypothesis and then come up with 
what you think will be the halo effect that it drives if you can't make direct. I look at social as a huge opportunity for us to make sure our brand promise is accessible and people understand the problems that we solve and also get a sense of the company. You can make a connection to individuals who engage with us in social and their likelihood and impact of influencing either a future customer to come on board or influencing or, you know, at least following us. If they change companies, that customer is likely to take us along with them. I think you have to come up with the hypothesis and then you also have to think about it in the context of where in the buying process are you trying to influence it before you just go full soup to nuts, go everywhere. When you look at your intent around the topics or keywords that align to the problems that you solve, that information, super, super powerful to inform your display and some of your ad investments to try to at least deliver your brand experience as your buyer might not be shopping for you, but at least it's going to create some level of continuity in their minds. You might not want to do it blanket all the time. If you have a blank check and can afford to do it, you may find that there's more utility in showing up in the context of the problems that you solve and then figuring out if that's enough of a hook to then go in and lead in that conversation. If the CEO cares about us not wanting to go and build huge armies of teams that might have skills that are obsolete. So I think about money and muscle when I try to have these conversations and say, some of the muscle can be done by tech. And the cost of not having the tech and the integrations to at least graph the IDs and create this actionable profile that you can use to do offline, online, and get that 360 view of the customer. I'll do it manually with more humans. The risk is, is that our competition might already have a better process and we might never get an opportunity to influence that customer. Again, I'm not in, I have not had a lot of product-led growth or e-commerce in my, in my history, but I imagine for those people in those companies with your product-led growth, the product becomes the channel and the aggregation of their usage and adoption and all of that, the, the product becomes the marketing channel where there has to be some, you almost have to have an opportunistic mindset that the customer just has to love the product and do what it is that they're trying to do. And then figure out how do you suggestively try to get them to champion that expansion? So I understand the duality of the funnels and what those companies are grappling with. So I can speak to it from obviously my perspective in terms of just saying, Know all the touch points that matter in terms of helping your customer. Associations and things where things are live, super, super easy. It's where you're moving into the hybrid and digital and then offline. That's where you've got to be very maniacal about the investments and abandon the ones that don't pay off based on your hypothesis. We did a deep, like a really intense deep dive in some of the places where we did go off brand.com to go and look at, you know, do we continue to invest? And we looked at pipeline. And then we also looked at closed wins and made some interesting decisions. I think you've got to start with a hypothesis, get everyone aligned with the impact that you're trying to drive, whether it is, you know, speed or it is conversion, you're expanding reach, and then have conversations about, you know, what's next if it's successful, and be willing to say it failed and you'll learn something if, if it wasn't successful.
And I like the way that, that you served it up because I talk about the same way. I, I have been, since the early part of my marketing career, a huge fan of pilots. And it depends on the organization, right? I feel like they are under, underutilized or not executed correctly. So in some cases, a pilot is, we're just going to try something and see what happens. Not going into with any KPIs, any hypothesis, and then you wonder why and it's not successful because you didn't set the stage for what does success look like. You can have success without having full results because they're directionally telling us, okay, great. These are signals that this might work. Let's expand this for another three, six months, whatever. But if you don't go into that pilot with clear communication to leadership or whoever is you know, on the hook to make the decision of like, this is what we expect to happen, or these are the early signals that this is potentially going to work, then that's when it falls apart. When we talk about this, this orchestration piece, when you said that it kind of perked my interest and actually led me right into my next question, I have seen a lot of fodder around moving from multi-channel to omni-channel that probably, you know, with you folks in the Bay area and having access to amazing tech, it's probably a little easier for you. But I think for most organizations that are not tech-based companies, that shift can be operationally difficult. But I think also from a mindset standpoint, it is a very different approach than, you know, historically market marketers are used to. So I would love to kind of hear your perspective and advice that you would give an organization that's in that process of trying to transform their go-to-market and go from this multi-channel uh, strategy to an omni-channel strategy? And maybe what are the steps they can do to set them up, set themselves up for success? Great question. Your CRM and your marketing automation system or your orchestration system, they've got to be friends. And then you've got to figure out what data points do you have strong religion on? Just align across the company on the data you care about, not only data to satisfy the system, but then also to give the sellers confidence that this is somebody who you're gonna have a really great interaction with from the brand, whether it's human or digital. I then think that there needs to be some, you know, get your process right, get the infrastructure right, make sure that everyone can see as with regards to how you manage that customer through that process whether it's campaigns, whether it's sources, they can get a full view of how that customer is engaging with the brand. And then if you get all those things right, you can do the single channel. Then you've got to think about all of the digital places where your brand is represented, whether it is e-commerce, whether you have your own content stores, you've got to figure out where are all of the places where you want your conversation to live? Many folks in B2B have invested in digital event experiences that have intent, that have data, which is great. But you have to take ownership knowing that if you take your customer there, you also need to feed those walled gardens to lead them back in. The other piece where I think it's emerging you have all those pieces in place and you really want to do the, you really want to get to the omni-channel. You've got to be able to get some infrastructure that allows you to vis visualize like how are customers moving through, how are they moving through and interacting with your brand. In my past, I had a great experience with, you know, as part of Adobe's marketing cloud, the visible access, the visible tool set was just super interesting to me in terms of being able to see the aggregation of all of the channels. Once you have that, and then you also think about, you know, your limited budget or managed budget, having an understanding of how to use intent to help you at least prioritize the decision or the lever to lead with when doing digital for your customers makes sense. And then an orchestration engine that also listens for great, if the customer did this, what's the next best engagement opportunity for them next? Is it something else in digital? Is it something else in, is it a lie? Is it a human? Is it time to have that human conversation? And then I'd also think about opportunities to also use content and then use content that also allows the customer to have what, I, what we coin a binge-worthy experience. And some of that can be integrated with .com, or there are other places where you could, you could either iframe it in, 
or make sure you're constantly giving that customer a sense of what it is you feel that they want next. You and I are happy to give our data to Amazon because we know we value the experience. The sentiment around making the experience great for the customer and the value exchange, you'll end up allowing them to drop their threshold and give you more information and more signals. I'm not saying I want a 12-line form. We're out of that business. And if you're still in that business, you should get out of that business. <laughs> you should get off of that bus. Get off yeah, of that bus. That, that bus is done. <laughs> right. But if you're able to think about your container for your customer data, at least a communication tool to connect the messages and sequence them in a way that makes sense, get the data right, think about intent, Think about orchestration and what do you want to have done next. If your muscle and money conversation is human and you don't look at tech, you're going to need a data store that's sitting and consuming all of this data on how somebody's interacting. And without any AI, they're going to have to make the decision on what your buyer gets next, which is really tough. And so CEOs just need to understand you cannot hold back on the revolution that we're in right now. This is a great time to be a marketer, to be able to, to use different technology sets to figure out how to have that intelligent conversation. I mean, I'm not saying that you can't find the right steward, but I don't know if I would want to put an individual under that much duress to make a decision. Do I add them to the sequence? Do I then send them to sales? Do I send all of them to sales? What's the intelligence around making that decision? I love some of the providers who are out there who are actually helping marketers with some of that decisioning. And then investment in the decisioning, it's helping to reduce the, the FUD that's around programmatic and display in thinking that it it's not connected to get an intentional conversation with a customer that you're trying to help and work with. To then also create some efficiency gains that can also help other people to say, okay, I no longer have to tune the experience. I can shift my focus to analyzing the experience and talking about how to make it better. I think that is really the value of implementing that AI system or whatever that kind of decisioning machine is because then you get to step back and analyze and pull out insights and then really evolve strategy versus always being in the weeds and trying to figure everything out. Um, how do you define multi-channel? How do you define omni-channel? Multi-channel means that you have access and the ability to deliver your brand message through a set number of channels. Omnichannel means that it is multi-channel, but there's a persistent level of intelligence and knowledge on how it is that you can reach them. And you actually are designed for it. You're battle ready to do it. You culturally accept that you need to be multi-threaded in your approach to engage your customers, your skills, tech, and business process to be an omni-channel brand and to deliver omni-channel experiences that allow you to seamlessly carry the customer and help them navigate their journey. No, and the reason I ask is that, you know, there's a lot of conversation about omni-channel and, and, and there should be, but I think I wanted you to illuminate kind of the, the drastic difference that exists between multi-channel and omni-channel. It's not just a simple evolution into omni-channel. Omni-channel is a lot of things beyond just putting more channels in. There's infrastructure that needs to be put in place. And so I, I like your definition. I wanted to get your take as a marketing leader on like, what is the difference? Because I've even seen people talk about omni-channel. I'm like, mm, I'm pretty sure that's multi-channel plus maybe. There are many brands that do multi-channel well, but I'm Adrian Chang at MindTickle. I then have my Gmail. I then have my phone number. Sometimes I have two phone numbers and I have a household. So if my profile does not capture those entities and you're not able to look at me as one person, despite the fact that I may have 18 different profiles, at best, 
your multi-channel. And I would yeah. argue you need to get multi-channel right first before you try to attack omni-channel. Agreed. A hundred percent agree. All right. Last question. And I'm actually very excited about this one. Talent. There's a, there's a war for talent we know in marketing. Well, everywhere. I also think that the marketer, the B2B marketer of the future needs to look different. So I want to get your perspective as a marketing leader on what are the future skill sets that B2B marketers need to be successful in the future world of B2B? I know exactly what you're getting at. The future B2B marketer is going to need more analytical muscle than they've had before. They are going to have to make some tough decisions because the thing that's grown the most, I'd say over the past 10, 15 years is data. And the amount of data the marketer has to navigate in order to get their brand in front of the prospective buyer. So they are going to have to be more analytically minded, not just to measure the performance, but to make the case to change and keep up with the times. And so I would have not said this probably 10 years ago. I would have said, oh yeah, my analytics team can go and do it. No, I, I definitely think that the performance-minded B2B marketer is now table stakes. It's not just from aligning with the seller and rolling up to the CEO, but it's also just showing that financial literacy on what are the investments to the CFO that we've got to make in order to keep and delight our customers. So with the analytics, I think there's also becoming much more data-driven in ways that much more data-driven in terms of just looking at the profile of the customer, the identities that define them, account, firmographic, personal, a lot more data set. Marketers are going to, the future B2B marketer is going to have to be much more comfortable looking at multiple dimensions of the customer and how they get expressed as they navigate the process. I've always said this, the third one I'd say is tech. The tech is no longer something that as a B2B marketer, you can offshore the ability to understand and to get your hands on keyboard. 20 years of experience for me, I still have my hands on keyboard. Using tech to follow your, you know, follow the buyer and see how they engage with the brand. And with this kind of explosion of tech and data that we've seen, you've got to figure out which systems align to your values of what you care about in terms of the customer and their expression, their behavior, and figure out how can you connect with them. And so the analytics part is key to know that you may have a situational scenario where most of your customers live in this environment or interact in this way. Great. But then you also have to know when to abandon that strategy when something changes. So I look at, I look at what we've gone through in the past couple of years as awakening of the importance of being digitally native. That skill set is not going to go away. It forced us to all be digitally native. So around the digital native part, data-driven tech and analytics, I think, are, are super key and will continue to be very important because of how complex B2B marketing is. Yeah. And it will become more and more complex over time. To be honest with you, I think that we're, and we're not there yet, obviously, but we are really going to have to look at our B2C counterparts and how they really have command over their data. It's a whole nother world over there. It's a very, very different world. I mean, we can see in our experiences, we brought up Amazon, these apples and all sort of things. We as a industry are going to have to, you know, fast forward in that. And I think it's coming faster than we think it is. I definitely think it's here. I've been positively paranoid about being late, even though I think I'm not late. I want to mirror my counterparts in B2C and figure out how can I be at the forefront of creating these really rich, interesting experiences. And I mean, they've navigated the household and the multiple emails and have contact models that support them and found ways to create momentum and deliver some of these omni-channel experiences that delight and are award-winning and world-class. You know, it's our turn in B2B to figure out how can we bring some of that innovation and genius over on our side. 
Well, Adrian, to wrap things up, any last minute tips, tricks, insights that has worked for you as a marketing leader to better align with sales and marketing, I'm sorry, to better align with your sales counterpart uh, before we close out, just, you know, what has worked for you? As we talked about, it's still an issue, it's still in many organizations dysfunctional. So I want to continue to, to gather insights as we try to think about this holistically. I'm a big believer in bringing data and helping the sales team understand that you understand their objectives and be very clear and succinct about how you're looking to how you're looking to drive them with the resources, the programs and the plans that you've developed and get into a regular cadence of feedback, celebrate the wins and also celebrate the other opportunities. If you are able to get your sales team in the room, make sure that you're you support that partnership and demonstrate all the ways in which you're putting that feedback into practice. Because if they give you the year, you have to take that opportunity and execute. I'm fortunate that in the past, I'd say the past two times in which I've been tied to the demand function in my career, including the current one here, when it's time for us to have our leadership cadence, we share our combined contributions against the same funnel. And at least if we start with the same viewpoint, then it takes the religion conversation to focus conversation off the table. I like it, sir. For those that want to follow up with you, follow you, stalk you, learn more about you, uh, how can they find you on social? They can find me on LinkedIn, so slash in Adrian Chang. For now, I'm still on Twitter, so I am at Adrian Chang on Twitter. <laughs> That's another show. <laughs> but that is another show. That is a whole That's other a show. That's a whole other show, but I had to get it in there. I had to. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm totally fine with it. I just like, ah, uh, we need to unpack that and we'll, we'll have to see what happens. I don't know when this is going to air. And so the world may have changed and shifted very It's been changing all the time, but yes, that's how you can find me. Well, again, I thank you for agreeing to be on the show. Really excited when you accepted. And I definitely wanted to get into your background. Cause again, I think you have a unique background. I think what you share with us across, you know, orchestrated experiences, the importance of being data native and the, just the skill sets of the new world order, so to say, of the B2B marketer, I think are all important. Rooting you on as well as mine tickle. And again, Adrian, we appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for having me and take care, Jeff. Enjoy the time today. You too. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.